So in one of the most famous events in history, in April of 1912, the Titanic, whoa, the Titanic set forth. And uh, it was hailed, as most of you know, as the largest, most indestructible, unsinkable ship to ever set sail. And on that first voyage, the Titanic in the North Atlantic ran into an iceberg and famously sunk, or is it sank? Whatever it did, it's the past tense of sink. And uh, 1,500 people perished tragically, including Leonardo DiCaprio. It's very sad. And uh, 1,500 people died. It was, it's one of the greatest nautical disasters in American history and world history and was billed as such at the time and still is seen as one of, the, one of the great tragedies of the modern era. It happened over 100 years ago now, and we still all pretty much know about it. Now flip the tables and think about it this way. Imagine that in April 1912, the Titanic set out with 1,500 people on board and everyone on the face of the planet, save the people on the Titanic, perished. Imagine that they landed in the harbor of New York City. They didn't hit the iceberg, only to find out that they were the sole survivors of the human race. How much more devastating would something like that be? That's, that's exactly, really, the story that we read here in this very ancient book of the Bible called Genesis. As we continue in the story of God, tonight we approach this story called, uh, well, really it's the story of the flood. It's the story of Noah and his ark. And the flood, as we read, tells of this worldwide cataclysmic flood that, that wiped out every living human on the face of the earth except for eight people. Now, if you've grown up in the church and you've heard this story many times, then as I read that text, you probably thought, oh yeah, I remember this one. But if you haven't been in church for a while, or if you've never heard this story, at least read from the Bible, perhaps you thought, man, this is, this is terrible. I mean, this is hard to take in, that God wiped out the entire human race, save Noah, his wife, and their three sons and their wives. How can that possibly be? How could anyone worship a God who would do something like that? You know, if that's what you're thinking, then I want you to know that you've understood the story rightly. You should, in many ways, feel disgust and dismay at reading such a tragic tale. But it's an essential part of the story of the Bible, and it's what we're going to spend a couple of minutes thinking about tonight together. So where have we been already in the story? We've seen that God, the creator of the universe, according to Christians, who names himself, he calls himself Yahweh, I am who I am, made this world. He made it out of nothing. He was the only thing that existed before he created everything else, and he made this world good. He made humanity in his image to be like him in many ways, and he called humanity to work and have dominion and multiply and subdue the earth and live in harmony with one another and with God. God, and he placed them in this perfect place, the Garden of Eden. And he gave them one commandment so that they would learn what it's like to live life under the authority of a good king. The commandment was don't eat of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Because when you eat it, what's going to happen? You will die. But as we saw last week, Adam and his wife Eve were unable to keep that commandment that the Lord God in his grace had given to them, and they ate when they were tempted by the devil. 
And when they ate, they plunged themselves and this entire world and all their descendants, all of us, into ruin, into peril, into a fallen, broken, shattered creation. They were exiled from Eden, a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword was placed at the entrance to the garden so that man could not re-enter. They were banished from God's presence. But we saw at the end of last week's story in Genesis 3 that God doesn't just wipe them out at that point, which he would have been perfectly just to do, but rather he makes a promise. He says, I will triumph even though you have rebelled against me. I'm going to crush the head of this serpent. In fact, one of your descendants, Eve, a man who is to come will crush his head, and I will, through that, rescue my people. Well, the story continues, and as we move forward, we see that the effects of rebellion, what the Bible calls sin against God, are drastic and violent. If you read these first chapters of Genesis 4, 5, 6, all the way up to Noah, you will see that people start killing each other. Things get really, really bad, really, really quickly. There's backstabbing, there's wars, there's bloodshed, there's lying, there's idolatry, there's covetousness, there's all manner of false worship, all manner of relational breakdown, all manner of rebellion against the creator, king, the good and gracious God of the universe. So that thousands of years after Adam and Eve, by the time Noah comes into the picture, God is able to say something like he says in chapter 6, verse 5. Every single thought of the hearts of every single human is only evil continually. And so at this point in the narrative of our story, God decides again to intervene. And he intervenes, to be very blunt, in judgment. He tells Noah, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to wipe out humanity, and you're going to be the only guy left. I want you to build an ark, even though you're in the middle of a desert and everyone's going to laugh at you. Obey me. And so as we get to the story tonight, I want to show you two things as we catch up with the story of God by looking at the flood. First, the flood is, the flood is, um, I forgot my first point. That's never a good sign. The flood is God's judgment. Shouldn't have forgotten that. The flood is God's judgment. And second, the flood is man's salvation, ironically. The flood is both, one, God's judgment, and two, man's salvation. Okay, so first, the first thing you must get about the flood is that the flood is an act of divine judgment. And listen, I know probably a lot of you have questions about, like, when did this happen? Was this really a worldwide flood, or was it just like a local flood that they exaggerated? And those are all very valid questions. I'd love to talk with you about those questions if you want to ask me after the service. Just real quick, let me say, I do think it was a worldwide flood. One of the reasons I think that is because hundreds of cultures from all different parts of the world, from Native Americans to Indonesians to Chinese to Eastern Europeans to Africans. Every culture has somewhere in the back of their cultural story a flood narrative. Now, most of them are messed up and sort of morphed from the biblical story, but that to me points to the fact that the ancient memory of every human on the earth, of every culture on the earth, eventually goes back to this flood. There's other reasons that I think the flood was worldwide. It happened thousands upon thousands of years ago. If you want to know about that stuff or the scientific stuff, talk to me afterwards. That's all I'm going to say now. The main idea is that the flood was big enough to wipe everyone out. 
It was big enough for every single human and moreover, everyone that breathed the breath of life on the face of the earth to, to perish. The flood is God judging the world. Um, when Nate, our oldest son, was born, he was a, still a baby and one of the sweet ladies in our former church, um, what did they, she, like, she did some needlework, you know, it's an old lady thing. Very sweet, very awesome. I pray that she's not listening to this sermon online. But this was a needlework thing that she framed, and it was a sweet little picture of Noah's Ark. And, you know, the giraffe is smiling, and the lion's waving. And it's got all these words put in there like, Day of Judgment, yay! You know, um, flood, yay! And, and, and uh, I looked at it, and I was like, this is like so Christian. Like, we've made this really horrific story that wiped out humanity into kind of a nursery rhyme. And uh, maybe that's the way you think about the flood. You think, oh, it's so sweet. To tell Look at this little children's Bible that has the sweet giraffe. Wait, Noah and him are high-fiving. Listen, this is God wiping humanity out. This is divine judgment. Rain comes from above. Floods come from under the earth. And everyone on the planet perishes. They get killed. They are dead. No more. Imagine, put yourself there in, in Noah's situation. God told him, I'm going to send a flood in 120 years. I want you to warn people to turn back to the God that made them. And Noah preaches, the author of Hebrews and 1 Peter and 2 Peter tell us this. Noah preaches and preaches and preaches and no one listens. No one ever believes him. In fact, they think he is a lunatic for building like this massive boat in the middle of the desert in Palestine. But he does it anyway. He obeys God. And then I want you to imagine after a hundred years of him working on this ark where God comes to him and says, in seven days, the rains are going to come. Get ready to board. The animals board the ark. The day arrives and Noah gets his family on board. And then as he's, as he's on the ramp, he looks out over the village that he's grown up in for his entire life. Imagine it. He smells the fires burning as people cook their dinners. And he sees children running in the village streets on the mud and on the clay as they prepare to go in for the night. And he, he watches the men come home from the work and the labor of the day. And then he looks out and over the horizon he sees a dark storm brewing with lightning in the background and thunder on his eardrums. And then the rain begins to fall. Noah boards the ark, and as the text says, the Lord shuts him in. And the rain continues and continues in a torrential downpour. And then all of a sudden, volcanic geysers of water begin to come out of the ground. People begin to flee. The first people that would have died undoubtedly were the weak, the infirm, the young children that could not have gotten to high ground. But eventually everyone, whether they were on a rooftop or on top of the highest hill, is going to be submerged by the waters. For a full year, Noah and his family were in that ark as God, in judgment, as God with justice wipes out humanity. The flood is, is a scary, frightening act of God judging the world. If you hear that and think about that and in many ways are maybe repulsed, then I want you to know that you are starting to understand the story. 
And, and it does bring up problems in both our heads and our hearts. And there's a lot we could say about this idea that God judged the world through the flood, but I want to say three things about it real quickly tonight. And again, I'd love to talk with you more if you're interested. The first thing I want you to get about this idea that God judged the world through this ancient flood is this. God judges the world because the world is wicked. That's what you need to see in chapter 6, verse 5. He says there, Moses, the author, says, the Lord saw what? The wickedness of man. And again, we just read this. It was great in the earth, and no one gets off the hook. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart, everyone, was only evil continually. God, listen, this is so important. God is not, he's not arbitrarily just because he thinks it will be fun, sort of just wiping out his creation. You know, Ben, our two-year-old, loves to, he's very unlike his older brother. Nate would, he builds Legos, like these massive Lego creations, and then just marvels at them. He loves them. Ben builds things only to destroy. He builds and he destroys, and he looks at me and he goes, yeah, wasn't that awesome? God is not like that. God does not just sort of create the earth and then wipe it out on some arbitrary, capricious whim. No, God acts in judgment because the world is wicked. People have, at this point, for for thousands and thousands of years, acted with violence towards one another. They are warring against each other. They are unjust towards one another. There is nothing good happening in the world that then was. And, And I know that so many of us, from time to time, even if we profess faith in Jesus, have we have a difficult time with the idea that God is a God who judges And it does raise up problems. Let's just be honest as Christians. It brings up problems both for the head and for the heart. But I would would just really quickly put forward to you that rejecting the idea of God's judgment gives you even more problems. In, In fact, I would argue that denying that God is a God who judges presents to you insurmountable problems. Tim Keller says that in particular it brings an insurmountable problem when you have to think about the issue of human violence. And I tend to agree with him. Think about it this way. When you see violence, you know, when you see tribes and nations fighting and killing each other just seemingly over meaningless disputes, you get angry. It makes you mad when you see about what ISIS is doing to people in the Middle East and all sorts of these other things. It it angers you, and you're right to be angry about that. Your heart longs for justice. It longs for goodness. It longs for these evil things to be righted. But the only options you have, really, are these. You can either just ignore those issues and pretend they don't exist and continue to live in your little fairy tale world, or you can answer violence with more violence. Those are really the only two options that we as humans face. Ignoring it is obviously not good, and answering violence with more violence is not good because really you're trying to be a part of the solution, but you end up just compounding the problem. Human violence can only be answered by a judge who is divine and powerful and good, a judge who sets the standards without assuming and believing in a God who is just in a God who is good, in a king who rules this world well, you cannot give a credible, logical answer to the problem of human violence. There are problems, undoubtedly, with the idea that God is a God of justice, but to deny it brings even more problems, both emotionally and intellectually. So you got to see, you got to see that the first thing that's happening in the flood is that God is judging the world. He's judging the world because the world is wicked. But there's something else I want you to get. 
Second, God is judging the world because it's wicked. And the person who is the most grieved, the person who is the most heartbroken by God's judgment of the world is God. Look at, look at verse 6. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 6 of chapter 6. He's said, this is the condition of man. Everyone is only evil all the time. And then verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him. It rent apart his heart. God feels deep sorrow at the wickedness of this world. God hates He hates what has become of his good creation through human rebellion. He is more saddened as judge than any of us are saddened as we read this story. Of anyone in the universe, the one who is the most brokenhearted over this act of justice is the one administering it. It's God. You know, if you're a parent, I bet that you can understand that. Trying to be a good parent, you know, your children rebel, they disobey, and you have a multitude of options. You know, option A, again, just ignore it. Let them do whatever they want. You're a scourge on society and problematic if that's the way you parent. Just kidding. That was a little strong. But that's not a wise decision to just let your kids do whatever they want. Not a good parenting option. Another parenting option that's very bad is when you just sort of take delight, this sort of sick pleasure in punishing your children. Ha, 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 you know? What most parents do just naturally because we love our kids is we discipline our kids, but we're sad. It's hard for us. It's a difficult thing. You feel, you feel grief over the grief that they're causing, and you feel grief over, over the fact that you must, if you're going to be good as a parent, teach them to live in a way that's fitting. That's exactly only on a much more significant scale how God feels when he judges the world. God judges this world because the world is wicked. And yet also, God himself is more deeply grieved than anyone else at this justice. Last thing I want you to see about this idea that God judges the world through the flood. And this is maybe the most important thing. If the flood is anything, if this story communicates anything to your life now, it communicates this. God here is kindly and lovingly warning us of the dire and significant consequences of turning from him. God is, he's showing us here through this vivid and true story, this terrible, tragic event of thousands of years ago, that to disobey him, to continue to oppose him, to rebel against the king will only lead you to peril. It will only lead you to death. Listen, I I know this is hard, but I want to make this clear, as clear as I possibly can under the influence of the Spirit. You cannot get away with sin. You cannot escape the judgment of a good and kind king. You cannot continue to live as if God does not exist and as if he has no authority over your life. You cannot continue to think that you set the rules of this game of life, that you are the one who is the author of your own story and the captain of your own ship. That is, to be frank, 
a straight lie from the pit of hell, and God will judge those who persist in believing it to be true. God will not continue to allow you or me to live however we see fit, to act as if we are the kings and not him, to think that really we rule and he is one of our subjects. God judges sin. Sin is serious business. It is not something for any of us to trifle with. It angers a holy and just God. And that's why God calls you right now and calls me right now to turn from our sin, to repent, to tell God that we are sorry for our treason, for our rebellion, and to flee to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And the good news of the gospel is that God always, 100% of the time, pardons guilty rebels like me. God always, 100% of the time, when we beg for his mercy, when we recognize that we are rebels, when we confess our sin, is willing to forgive us and indeed does forgive us finally and forever through the blood of Jesus shed on us. The flood is calling you to escape the good and just judgment of God and plead on his mercy. And so, secondly, we see that not only is the flood God's judgment of the world, but it's also God's salvation of man. You see, the flood isn't just God judging the world, although it certainly is that. It's, it's also God saving the world through judgment. Uh, and that's what's happening here in Noah and in his family. A number of facets of the story point that out. Um, first of all, we see there in verse 7 or verse 8 of chapter 6 that, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then the text goes on to tell us that Noah is righteous. He's a righteous man. And, and oftentimes people tend to read this story and on the surface think, well, the reason God saved Noah is because Noah was doing better than everybody else. He's righteous. No one else is righteous. That's the thing. God, uh, God looked down at Noah and saw, of everybody on the earth, Noah, you're the one who has more debits than credits in your sort of spiritual checking account. I'm going to let you slide, build the ark, but no one else has done enough. They're getting wiped out. But that's not at all the case. Listen, Noah is just as wicked as everyone else on the face of the planet. And if you don't believe me, read chapter 9, where he builds himself a vineyard after the ark is landed. He gets really, really wasted, makes a fool of himself, and ruins his family for generations. Noah is a mess, just like everyone else is a mess. The reason the text calls him righteous is because he first found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, that word favor is the word grace. And this is the first time it's used in the Bible. You see, grace precedes obedience. And we see that here. God, in his sovereign mercy, chose to show love and mercy and grace to Noah and to Noah's family. And that's why we see Noah as righteous. Besides that word, by the way, righteous in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean without sin. It means that Noah recognized his sin and ran to Jesus through faith. That's what it means to be, to be righteous. When a person is described as that in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that they were without sin. It means they knew they sinned and believed God at his word. So, so God saves Noah's family, and he does it through Noah constructing this ark to escape the judgment. And I want you to see God's in control the whole time. Kind of the highlight of the whole text is chapter, chapter 7, verse 16. The floods are coming, the rain's starting to fall, and we read, who is it that shuts the door? 
the Lord. God is the one who comes down and closes the door of the ark to preserve Noah's family from his own divine judgment. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we read that, that God remembered that's, that's covenant language. That's promise language. God remembered Noah. He remembered that he had shown Noah grace, that he had made a promise to save Noah and Noah's family, and he does so. You see, as, as the waters rose above the earth and wiped out every living thing, the waters at the same time rose the ark above God's judgment and preserved Noah and his family. So in the actual act by which God judges in this flood, he is also at work saving his people. And here's what you got to get. The flood is really a prequel to a bigger judgment. And the ark is a prequel to a greater salvation. You see, you see what God is doing in saving Noah all the while judging righteously the sins of this world, shows us exactly what God is doing at the cross. You see, you see, the cross is the final flood. The cross is, is the new ark. The cross is the place where, again, God comes and righteously judges the rebellion of this world. Only at the cross, he doesn't judge diffusely, spreading it out across the globe. But no, he pours out his judgment on one person in one place at a given point in time outside of the gates of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And through the judgment of God on Jesus, you escape and receive his grace, just as Noah through the ark, escaped God's judgment and received grace. You see, the story of Noah, the story of the ark, the story of the flood, all of it's true, all of it happened, but it's all intended to show you, to warn you, to call you to believe that a greater judgment indeed is coming on this world and that a greater escape has been made available to you through Jesus. You see, another judgment is indeed coming as well. The Bible at the very end records it for us, and Noah is often used as an illustration. This judgment will not be with water, it will be with fire. And the only way to escape this judgment is to run to Jesus. The only way to escape the just judgment of God for your sins is to get on the ark that is the cross. And the only way to board the ark is through faith. It's to simply believe to believe that God is speaking the truth when he calls this world to account, to believe that one day you will die. Every one of you will die unless the Lord comes back before then. And when you die, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, you are destined to face judgment. You will stand before God, the holy father and maker of this world, and you will give an account to him. Can you stand before him and dare say, I have done enough to be in your presence and to merit your favor. No. None of us can ever say such a thing except Jesus. The only way to escape is to connect yourself to the one truly righteous man, to the greater ark, to the greater Noah. It's to board the ark by believing in Jesus' work at the cross. You see, you see, this part of the story calls you 
to do something very important. It calls you to make yourself vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable enough to say, I am a sinner, justly deserving God's wrath and displeasure. And I plead the mercy of Jesus on my behalf. I run to him and trust that on the cross, he's bearing the judgment I deserved. I run to him and believe that what you've promised is true, that you are a just God, but you are also a gracious and merciful God, and all who trust in him will never be put to shame. It's the promise of the gospel. It's what the story leads us to. Let me close with this. I read a story this week from uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who used to be a pastor in Philadelphia, and he writes about this godly old woman who lived during World War II in England, and she had been told by her pastor, a little small parish English church, many years before to make what's called a promise box. And she would take 200 promises from the Bible and write them down on these little pieces of paper and fold the pieces of paper up and put them in this box. And uh, now I guess we would put it on our iPhones and set our reminder up when we're feeling bad and read a promise. But the way it worked is when you felt bad, when you were discouraged, when things weren't going well, when you were doubting God's goodness, you would go into the kitchen and take something out of the promise box and open it up and read this promise from God's word. Well, World War II came along, and the Germans were bombing London. Things were going terribly. There was famine all over the place. She couldn't feed her kids. There weren't any new clothes to be bought. Things were really, really rough. And she's sad and weeping, and she makes her way across the kitchen to one last time hopefully reach for that promise box and read something from God's word to encourage her. But as she's making her way over, she trips and hits the box, and it goes flying in the air, lands on the ground, and busts open, and the promises fly everywhere and sprinkle down around her. And at that moment, she realized all the time, All of God's promises have their yes and amen in Jesus. All the time, all of God's promises are true for you, no matter what you've experienced this week, no matter how scared you are about what's to come, no matter how doubtful you are about a certain relationship, no matter how worried you are about your finances, no matter what, God's promises are true. And he has promised that all who come to Jesus, carrying our unworthiness, carrying our shame, carrying all of our guilt and our fears and our failures, will be carried by him into eternity. Believe. Let's pray.